This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Ready for an earthquake drill, a global one? Well, that's what will happen at 10.20 a.m. tomorrow. Here in the islands, it's being billed as the Great Hawaii Shakeout. Thousands have signed up so far locally. The Hawaii Emergency Management Agency is spearheading this effort. We talked to Communications Manager Adam Weintraub this morning about what's being planned. Well, the ShakeOut is an annual event, and it emphasizes three steps that have been proven to reduce injuries and deaths during an earthquake. That's drop, cover, and hold on. And the ShakeOut gives us a time and a place where everybody can practice those actions and help establish a little bit better earthquake preparedness for all the places that are threatened by earthquakes. And earthquakes are indeed a hazard statewide in Hawaii. So we try to participate every year and we encourage others to do the same. It can be as simple as a one-minute drill over the intercom at work. Some people get as elaborate as playing out scenarios with injuries that need to be treated and evacuation, but feel like the flexibility of the program is folks an opportunity to kind of set up an event that makes sense for where you're conducting it, whether it's at home or at school or at a workplace. So how many people have signed up so far? The last check, we had more than 24,000 participants in Hawaii alone. Worldwide, the number is in the millions. When you say participants, so those individual entities could be like a, a school or a state agency? Yeah, we have more than 10,000 people who are accounted for in the school signups that we've had so far. So they're listing their school on the, the website, and then they're counting their staff and the students who are in attendance. So as I say, last time I checked, it was about 24,000 statewide. And as we've increased our publicity in the days leading up to it, we're hoping that number goes higher. The Big Island just saw an earthquake on Friday, a couple of uh, quakes and aftershocks, and you know, there was some damage. So, you know, people really need to just be cognizant that, you know, it could happen anytime. Absolutely. I, I think there's a pretty common sense that Big Island is where most of the earthquake threat is. And while that's where the most seismic activity is, we know that every once in a while you get a thumper that carries. And Friday we did have reports that the earthquake was felt on Maui and even some reports from eastern Oahu. If you go back to 2006, we had millions of dollars of damage and numerous destroyed buildings on the Big Island for the 2006 Bay earthquake. But that was strong enough to be felt in Oahu and it knocked the power out here for 14 hours. So it is a threat statewide and prepare this is always a good idea. Is there anything different this year, you know, based on years past? I think the steps that we advocate, drop, cover, and hold on, those are pretty standard from year to year. The sense is that the biggest risk of injury in an earthquake is while the shaking is going on, and it's typically things falling off shelves and lights fixtures collapsing, and if there's debris from a plaster ceiling, it could come down. Drop cover, hold on, gives you protection of your head and neck area. It gets you under cover, and it's the most effective step that you can take while the earthquake is happening. So that's the, the kind of behavior that we're hoping to model with this drill, is to get folks to where this is an automatic response if they feel that shake. The steps to take after that is going to depend on the degree of damage that the earthquake has caused. After the immediate shaking has stopped, the next thing to do is to survey your circumstances and take action based on the additional information you have. We know that every incident is a little different, but we do know that these steps will help protect life and safety.
And are there different guidelines, say, if you're in a single family, you know, ground level unit versus a high rise? You know, there are some differences, and the checkout website is great as far as the resources that it provides. It includes everything from how to approach it in an office versus a school, a high-rise versus a low-rise, if you're in a car, if you are somebody who has experiencing mobility issues, you maybe use a walker or a scooter. There are specific instructions there. It's a wealth of information. So once we open the doors of awareness with the drill, we invite people to explore that website and find the material that's relevant to your circumstances and your situation. There's a lot of material out there, and it's well-written, well-represented, and it covers a wealth of scenarios. Generally, when we hear about earthquakes that happen far away, you know, there's the risk of a tsunami being generated. So, you know, how do you incorporate all of that? Well, the drill itself for ShakeOut doesn't address the risk of tsunami, but of course tsunami is a part of our thinking here in Hawaii because a local tsunami gives us very little time to alert the public that there is a threat. We have got criteria where if there's a certain level of earthquake that's detected, there's an automatic sounding of the sirens if there is a risk for a tsunami. This particular drill doesn't incorporate that in the larger planning, but we do have statewide plans that include the combined hazard kind of an approach, and we drill those on a regular basis. I'm just curious, uh, do you have any firsthand experience with a bad quake? I haven't had first-hand experience with a bad one myself. My home is on the Big Island, and we had a pretty significant bump just about a year and a half ago that you could feel coming all the way up the hill from offshore. There are still some cracks in my property from the 2006 event that were considered cosmetic, and they weren't fixed at that time. Nothing structural, luckily, knockwood. But I did live in California for a while, and you get reminders regularly there that the Earth is alive and it moves, and we are temporary residents. When the Earth shakes, we have to do what we can to protect ourselves and then clean up afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Mother Nature on the move. So, uh, yeah, I guess if, if folks want to take part, then they can uh, go to that website again? Yes, it's shakeout.org slash Hawaii. That was Haima Communications Director Adam Weintraub talking to us about the Great Hawaii Shakeout, the emergency earthquake drill scheduled for 10.20 a.m. Thursday morning. For links to register, head to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light, here to talk about mental health services for Lanai residents. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this was kind of a sad story to learn that uh, the services really just aren't there for, for those residents. Yeah, I mean, this is a story focused on uh, about 25 patients of the State Adult Adult Mental Health Division. Um, The State Adult Mental Health Division provides uh, mental health care to people with serious mental health diagnoses who are uninsured or underinsured 
Um, and as I said, on this island, there's about 25 of them. But uh, during this pandemic period, there's been some um, reductions in community-based care. It used to be that a psychiatrist traveled from Maui twice a month to meet with patients, and now the majority of that care is being done via telehealth. Uh, there also used to be a full-time uh, social worker, case manager on Lanai, and uh, currently that position is open. And while the state has tried to hire folks to fill it, because it's so hard to find a place to live that's affordable on Lanai, uh, that position has remained open for over a year now. Well, it was surprising to learn that uh, the patients there have to talk to someone, what, from the mainland? Yeah, so during uh, the COVID pandemic, during that first year, um, patients have been seeing a psychiatrist for about seven years who was based on Maui. Then COVID hit and that care went online out of necessity, like it did so many places worldwide. Um, but then uh, what happened is that the state actually moved these patients to see a different psychiatrist who was based in Michigan on the mainland. And again, it was all over the internet. So uh, the 4,000 mile gap really wasn't an issue, but for patients, it's a big deal to lose a psychiatrist that they've built up you know, a relationship with over seven years. Yeah, and, you know, there is something to be said for face-to-face communication, you know, and I imagine, you know, particularly with mental health services, gosh, you want to have a body in the room. Yeah, you know, there's not much research on folks with serious mental health diagnoses, such as schizophrenia, for example, Uh, and whether telehealth really works for them. Uh, When it comes to folks with more mild um, disorders or symptoms, yeah, telehealth telehealth can be a great substitute, but we just don't know yet uh, whether this really translates for people who have, you know, more difficult symptoms. And so the staff that they had supporting these patients, you know, the case managers, I mean, so uh, I understand that there was just some, some tension involved also about, you know, this move to to outsourcing? Yes, at least one of the staff members, the the former case manager who lived on Lanai and had that job for 31 years, he was suspended twice um, in late 2020 and again in in early 2021 because he really opposed these changes in the care of the patients and he really questioned how it affected the quality of their care. Um, And he ended up retiring, which created that open position that, like I said, you know, the state is having a hard time filling because it's hard to find someone who's able to afford to, to live there. Um, and, you know, this, these problems are, are, it's not just Lanai. This is, uh, you know, across rural, rural Hawaii, these issues are, are everywhere. All right. Yeah, you've got to stand up and uh, uh, speak up for yourself. But thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, head to civilbeat.org.
You're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami just signed into law a bill that requires new construction to take sea level rise into account. It sets a new model for the country's coastal communities. Kawakami is seeking a second term in office. He's being challenged by Michael Rovin Pai. Kawakami says he will stay the course if voters return him to office during the general election. The thing about these sort of proactive measures that address climate change, I mean, people tend to want sort of instant, tangible, they want to see the results and how it's going to help them now. These sort of measures don't do that. These sort of measures take a look at what we are starting to see and forecasting into future and how it's going to impact people in general and and government because it's expensive when we have to go do repairs after a, a high wave event with King Tide. It's a tremendous amount of resources. And yeah, as a surfer and somebody that spends a lot of my time along our coastal areas, I have seen changes. So I wholeheartedly support this and think in the measure itself, it doesn't impact anybody out there that's there now. But if they do want to make changes or if there is going to be future growth, there's going to be changes that need to be done that take into account some of what we've seen and some of what's forecasted as far as sea level rise, some of the weather events that we've seen, high wave events, and its impact on the coastline. So, yes, it's one that we support and one that I'm very thankful that our planning director and our planning department really took some bold steps, calculated steps, to address a growing concern. As you reflect on your term and then, you know, look forward, you know, past the general election, I mean, you know, what are your priorities going to be? You know, will they change? No, the priorities are the same. We're an administration that has really focused on infrastructure. If you take a look at what local government should focus on, it's the infrastructure, it's the things that aren't glamorous. It's your roads, your wastewater system, the disrepair that our bridges have kind of been through that we are addressing in our term in office. It's taking a look at landfill issues and solid waste issues. But when we all talk about diversifying our economy, oftentimes we fail to really realize that whenever we invest heavily in our roads, bridges, those are all job creators. And if you take a look at what they make, what the laborers, what the steel workers, what the engineers, and what sort of living wage they're going home with after we create these jobs, these are the type of jobs that have been spoken about at length. A job that can give our kids and our young people an opportunity to thrive. These are all highly skilled work that's being done and we need to let our local people know, especially the young people, if they're wondering what to do with their lives, that there is a career in the trades, in the building industry, and we are really putting our resources behind it. We also take a look at housing. You know, we've really changed how we address affordable housing. We came into office and being that I have experience at the county council level and at the state house of representatives, we can't legislate our way out of this issue. And so we've really taken a look at utilizing one of our biggest assets under the county and state, which is infrastructure and available land. And we were able to just have a blessing at Haupu View which is 50 unit that was previously just behind Kukui Grove Theater. 
it was just a parking lot and we were able to squeeze 50 units. They're all fully occupied. Right across the street, we did Keolaula at Pooloke. It's similar to Kahuiki Village. It's permanent supportive housing that has wraparound services in sort of a plantation village setting that's fully occupied that used to just be a park that was underutilized. Really just previously a homeless encampment and now we've really revitalized the area. We have Limaola, the western front on Kauai, where all the infrastructure is done. Phase one and phase two has been contracted out. That's going to be senior housing and then affordable rentals. We were able to acquire 400 acres in Waimea, which we call Waimea 400, and that's going to be a very holistic community when it's built out. That will incorporate what the community told the county that they'd like to see as far as open space, some affordable housing, some recreational area. And of course, we're taking a look at our Waimea Wetland Restoration Initiative that's going to take into account changing climate and what the potential sea level rise could look like 30, 40, 50 years from now. We're looking at resilient communities. We're just coming out of the pandemic. What did this health and economic crisis teach you and what will you do different if you uh, get elected again? My grandfather used to really instill in his children and grandchildren and to anyone that would listen that the prerequisite for success, whether it's economic or whatever it is that you are trying to do is your health. Take care of your health. And what we've learned is that we as a county are taking steps in the right direction and that we should continue to incorporate into the built environment ways that people can live a healthier life and, and be able to thrive. You know, we've seen how fragile our healthcare system can be and how dependent we are on nurses and doctors and emergency room doctors and what our capacity is as far as having intensive care units. You know, a lot of people have said, well, why aren't you guys just providing more intensive care units? As well, those beds are useless unless we have nurses that can tend to those beds. And so it really identified gaps in our workforce that we have to start to try to address. But on the county level, it exposed how dependent we are on that visitor industry. You know, when that industry was impacted significantly, how it had a permeating effect on every other industry on Kauai. But we are a resilient island. We've been through big challenges before. And what it also identified is that we have a community that knows how to come together, that we've had people volunteer at food drives, bringing food to people's homes that didn't have the ability to get out. We created a Rise to Work program and partnered with our nonprofits and many people that couldn't get work or were on the unemployment system who just wanted to not be on the system and really have a sense of fulfillment decided to go and participate. So with all the things that we learned about the pandemic, as far as weaknesses, it really identified areas where we were resilient and it identified areas where we are really strong as an island. So it sounds like you probably won't do anything differently. No, I mean, the priorities that we've set are the priorities that the people have been asking for for a long time. And it's take care of our roads. We want government transparency. And so we were the first administration to approach the council and say, hey, we think that you folks should authorize audits and take a look at our buildings division where permits are issued. We would like you to take a look into our solid waste and do a deep dive. So we are addressing things that the people have been asking for for a long time. These are really the things that county governments should be focused on. They should be focused on rebuilding trust with the people that we serve. We should be focused on infrastructure because there's a never-ending need for infrastructure, which all leads to 
affordable housing, right? All roads to affordable housing are roads. And we should be focusing on continuing to develop our people, improving customer service, and taking a look at our process where we can create efficiencies and deliver a better product to our people. Do you have any regrets this first term? I view failures as an opportunity to learn, right? If you learn from mistake, then they become meaningful. We really take pride in creating an environment where our leadership team and our people can grow and thrive. And so that being said, we don't discourage mistakes when they happen with good intent and if there's a takeaway from it. And usually when people live with regrets, it's because they failed to take the mistakes and the learning moments. What mistakes did you make? Oh, tons of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right out the gate, we had good intentions to build affordable housing in the Koloa Poipu area because we were granted open space from a developer in the area. And when you look at the Koloa Poipu area, we have tons of parks. But we thought that there was a greater need for affordable housing. And so we went out there to say, hey, we're going to do affordable housing out there. And we got yelled at. And so we adjusted the way we do things. And when we were able to acquire 400 acres in Waimea, instead of going out there and saying, hey, we think this would be a great idea, all we did is we went out and said, we come in peace. <laughs> we have no preconceived notions with these 400 acres, but we think that the people that live here have an idea of what should be done. So we want to hear from you. We didn't go out there with any microphones. We had boxes where people could write anonymous comments. Planning department took all of those comments back, looked at common denominators, and what they found out is, Gosh, about 99% of the things that they want are the same things we want, but it's coming from them. Right. So you had the buy-in from the um, get-go. That's good. You know, that's where I would say we had a learning moment and we turned a mistake into something that we were able to improve on so we didn't have those regrets. That was Koi Mayor Derek Kawakami talking about his priorities and what he's learned during his first term as mayor of the Garden Isle. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Banco Investment Services, committed to helping families with plans for retirement and the future since 1991. Learn more at boh.com investments or 694-8500. Before we get to Neil Milner, we've got a lot of little yellow birds dotting our islands, but they've all got different songs. On today's Mono Minute, we've got the song of the vibrant Saffron Finch, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii Hilo Biology Professor Patrick Hart. The saffron finch is a golden yellow songbird that can be commonly seen in small flocks on lawns and other grassy and shrubby areas on Hawaii Island and Oahu. Native to South America, they were introduced to Hawaii in the early 1960s, mainly because of their colorful plumage and their pleasant whistle-like songs. Both sexes are bright yellow, but males have a much more orangey head and face, while juveniles are much lighter yellow. They mostly forage on the ground for seeds and insects, and are also happy to visit backyard bird feeders. These birds were introduced at a time when many of our native birds had disappeared from the lowlands due to mosquito-transmitted disease like avian malaria. If and when we ever succeed at landscape-scale control of these non-native mosquitoes, it's possible that many of our native birds, like the bright red apapane and the yellow amakihi, can recolonize our parks and backyards. 
it remains to be seen how they might interact with some of the newly established species like the saffron finch. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. You may be older than you think if you use the yardstick of the Internet. On the long view today, we talk about that with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, who joins us live in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at the Internet. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. This is an article that was in Wired Magazine recently by a writer named Helena Fitzgerald. Um, and what's interesting about it is that she's writing about her own personal experiences of growing old on the Internet. Okay, I can write about growing old because <laughs> I'm growing old. She's about 37 years old. And so what this says that's really interesting is about what the Internet does and what aging does because she's of a unique perspective. She's a millennial. Millennials are really the first group that came of age on the Internet as very young and are now aging, as she puts it. So you say, what do you mean by aging if you're 37 years old? Who cares? It's an interesting thing to care about because what she says about the Internet is that from day one, the Internet was about being young and essentially being snotty and, and sassy, which is what they were when they started out, if you consider her age. And that there were a lot of kind of snarkiness, a lot of kind of teasing, and a kind of confidence that it's for the young. But what happens over time, and this happens in condensed form because the Internet is so youth-oriented and has been oriented, is that you grow old and obsolete pretty fast. What used to be really cool, like, say, having an AOL account, now is I actually have a friend who still has an AOL account. Wow. I mean, that's one of the great signs of, of being old. So you've had this kind of change, and... That's where she finds herself, where she has this ambivalent relationship toward social media. She's a number of times discarded her, her just gotten rid of her Twitter. And then she'll put it back on. She says, because I want to hear people say bad things about me, because that's how the Internet works. So you, you, you can either see that as unsympathetic, but also as a kind of dynamic, a kind of social dynamic that's going on. So that's where she is. You know, I remember seeing a picture of a a, a, a baby, <laughs> an infant, uh, not an infant, but a toddler who was uh, using her finger to poke at a, a magazine, and she was, you know, waiting it for it to move and yeah. swipe, and it's like, you know, just not even a year old. It was crazy. Oh no, no, it's it really is. But what happens as this begins to take place? It isn't even so much the mechanics of of learning. Uh, it's more about what changes on the Internet and, and what gets discussed. And so there is a very strong, since it, it's always had a cutting-edge reputation, it's always, the, the, every time something new comes on, whether it's TikTok or Facebook before that, there's always a sense that this is cutting-edge, it's for the young at that time. And let's call them, let's call them the social media young, which is not someone who's, let's say, 
on Social Security, but someone who's from the last generation of, let's say, a millennial like like Helena is, who would be 25 or 30 years old. And that's very disconcerting because essentially they find that they lose their voice and that they begin to be seen not so much as the butt of old jokes. There's some of that. But the process of interaction is sort of passed them by. And because they've been on the Internet since, internet since let's say, the get-go, as far as they're concerned, this is a tool that was very important to their lives, very important as teenagers, um, very important as youth. And all of a sudden, they find themselves, uh, what do you want to say, socially and in some ways spiritually aging out of it. And it's like losing a tool. Uh, it's like losing a friend that you're also angry with, but you want to bring back. Yeah, but, you, you know, it does change so often, and so you really can't get too comfortable. Well, you get the, the carpet r- pulled well, out that's from right. You. I mean, you know, I long ago made my peace with it. I, there are certain things that I'll never do. I don't have a Twitter account. But in, in her case, what she's trying to show is that it's hard to make your peace at this stage. And so what she tries to do, and this is where it, the aging part becomes interesting in a more general way, because at her age, as a millennial, it, it, she starts talking about what, the, what kind of changes there could be on the internet to make it more compatible with a larger group of people over time, like let's say her group. That sounds a lot like people generally say about what should happen with aging. She talks about the fact that, you know, the one of the things that you can do with the Internet is to broaden viewpoints, is to broaden diversification, is to have more people telling their stories. Now, you know, if you go on the Internet, the Internet is a great place for storytelling for sure. Um, all you know, all, you, you can you can get on. Just watch YouTube, but she thinks that there has to be more of, of a, a look at that. You know, on the one hand, I say I'm not so sure how much that would make a difference, but as a general point, the point that older people's viewpoint, older people's voices get lost. So it's coming from a 37 year old or so, but it's really a point that a lot of older people make and that they make with us you know with a great degree of accuracy we become invisible we become lost so whether you can really change that on the internet or how much it does need changing that's another kind of question but it's certainly the sentiment is certainly there and let me just add one thing before you add another question it's refreshing to read something about the internet that's not based just on uh, on hardcore research that's not just based on whether the kids are benefiting or whether they're not benefiting that stuff's important this has got a different kind of human dimension that makes you think about it it's like fitting a story into a broader context well, uh, my whole relationship with the Internet is, I like to say, uh, I want to make sure I use it more than it uses me. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, the other way of looking at it, too, is that um, on the one hand, she would like to increase the social utility of the Internet in a different kind of way. On the other hand, there is so much written about how the, excuse me, how the Internet messes people up, or as Jonathan Haidt says, makes people stupid. 
certainly politically, it makes people uh, it makes people into uh, into silos. It makes people argue. It makes people doing all the things that will not bring folks together to examine things. So this is not if if you put what she wants into into that kind of setting, we're right back. It's just a microcosm to to where we fit now with Facebook and with all the others and and with Twitter and so on. Um, who knows? Uh, uh, Michelle Goldberg has a column recently, I think it's in the Star Advertiser today, where she talks about Twitter and why she has a Twitter account, because for professional journalists it's useful. But she's so down on Twitter, she says that the part of her wants Elon Musk to take it over, because Musk is really threatened to do all kinds of things that, uh, from her standpoint, are pretty awful. And she said... Maybe the good thing is if Elon Musk takes it over, it'll get so bad that people will quit using it. Uh, so <laughs> that's where we are. We're at C generally with it, and she puts it, uh, Helena puts it at C in a very personal way. Okay. All right. Well, as you said, you make peace with it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll send you a telegram. Okay. Thanks so much. You're welcome. <laughs> I was contributing editor Neil Milner, joining us for our biweekly segment we called Longview. Check out the links to the articles he referenced on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.